What a great song of praise. They've already preached the sermon. I might as well sit down. When Karina asked me to preach, I asked her about the theme of our chapel services, and she told me that this term, the theme is celebrating the church. I thought of a great text in First Peter I could preach until I found out the president preached it last week. No, <laughs> no but as actually, really, as I looked in the, the lectionary, which is a tool some churches use to, to read and preach through Scripture, the Scripture passage that's selected to be read and preached on for this Sunday is the story of Jesus calling his first disciples in Mark's gospel. It's a celebration of the church at the very moment of its conception. The first 15 verses of Mark's gospel gives us all the information we really need to know about Jesus. He's the Christ. He's God's anointed Messiah. He's the Son of God linked to Israel's history and the fulfillment of it. And in Jesus' baptism, we see his identity confirmed as God's son. And in his temptation in the wilderness, we see his authority tested. And in his very first sermon in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus goes into Galilee proclaiming the good news that God's kingdom is now breaking into our world. He is announcing it. He is bringing it. And as You see, as you read further into the gospel story in his life and in his ministry, in his suffering, death and resurrection, he embodies and demonstrates it. And with the basis of Jesus authority established, Mark begins to show us how Jesus put that authority to work right back in chapter one. And what's the first thing Jesus does? He starts a church. He calls together a community. He gathers people to join him in his kingdom work as followers, as learners, as disciples. He calls them and he commissions them, although they really don't have the slightest idea what they're in for yet. But I'll leave that to another sermon. Let's look at God's word, and I'll beginning reading at verse one of Mark's gospel, chap, uh, uh, verse 14, chapter 114. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. That was my first computer. In Scotland, 1984, a K Pro 2, the hottest thing on the market. 
It was sold to me as a portable computer, but it was about as heavy as a sewing machine and the size of a carry-on suitcase. And now, a quarter of a century later, I'm still fairly computer illiterate, although I'm not as bad as some people. I heard about a customer who called the Dell Tech support line who, saying he couldn't get his computer to fax anything. And after 40 minutes of troubleshooting on the telephone, the technician discovered the problem. The man was trying to fax a piece of paper by holding it on top of his computer monitor and hitting the send button. <laughs> a woman called the Canon help desk about a problem with her printer. And when the tech guys asked if she was running under, under Windows, the woman said, well, no, my, my desk is near the door, but that's a good point. The guy sitting in the cubicle next to me, he's under a window, and his printer's working just fine. <laughs> Rumor has it that Compaq was considering changing their common command, press any key, to press the return key, because they were getting a flood of calls um, asking where the any key is. Press any key. That's a that's a simple enough command. But not everybody gets it. And Jesus says, come, follow me. It's a simple enough command, but not everybody gets it. Follow me. Be with me. Spend time in my company. Apprentice yourself to me. The really good news here, says Dallas Willard, is that with this invitation, Jesus is now taking students in the master class of life. Follow me. That's the challenge of being discipled by Jesus. Not merely do you agree, but will you follow? Will you join the Jesus movement? Will you fall in step with his priorities? Will you let him show you the way that your life is to be lived and orient your very existence around him? There was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine that showed a married couple having an argument. And in the caption, the disgruntled wife is muttering to her husband, there you go again, quoting our marriage vows out of context. Well, no. Marriage vows are for life, all of it, from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, until death do us part. And that's the same way with discipleship. When you promise to follow Jesus, it encompasses the whole of our lives. No part of life is off limits to Jesus' call. That's one of the things this passage is trying to make crystal clear. The word follow is a discipleship word. It's a it's a life and death, all or nothing. It's a fork in the road kind of word. In the Old Testament, it features prominently in the ministry of Elijah, the, the great prophet. Remember when Elijah, the prophet, had his legendary power encounter with the wicked priests of Baal up on Mount Carmel? It's found in first Kings chapter 18. King Ahab had been wavering as to whether to follow the God of Israel or the Canaanite deity Baal. And the decisive moment comes when Elijah declares before the whole gathered congregation, 
How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And Elijah goes on to demonstrate in power the the supremacy of Israel's God over the Baal idols. Follow me, says Jesus. To follow him is a fork in the road. It's, It's black and white. It's an all or nothing choice. And that's what we see presented to us in the story. These four fishermen... Isn't that a beautiful picture? I found it online. It's, uh, it's, it's an artist and a professor at Nanjing Theological Seminary in China. A, a, a picture of the calling of the disciples. These four fishermen, Simon and Peter and his brother Andrew and, and his brother Peter, James and his brother John, they're the first recruits of the group that will be known as the Twelve Disciples. Now, commentators tell us that in those days, fishing on the Sea of Galilee was a fairly solid occupation. I mean, you couldn't get rich doing it, but not prosperous, but but comfortable. It was steady work in a precarious world. Matthew doesn't say so, or neither does Mark, but John's gospel, we learned that this wasn't the first time Simon, Peter and Andrew had encountered Jesus. He'd met them before, and the Gospels don't record, Matthew and Mark don't anyway, if there was more than a, more to it to our Lord's conversation with Peter and Andrew than that one brief sentence, come with me and I will teach you to fish for people, or the familiar old phraseology from the King James, I'll make you fishers of men. Maybe these guys had had heard about Jesus before. Maybe they'd listened to Jesus and pondered the implications of his message. We don't know. But whatever their previous knowledge or experience of Jesus, whatever his full message to them was, what Mark is trying to make clear is the immediate response they made. Notice when Jesus says to Simon and Andrew, follow me, what does Mark tell us? He says they drop their nets. What's the what's the emphasis here? At once. They leave behind the tools of their trade. They forsake their business. They say goodbye to their assets in order to follow him. Evidently, discipleship can cramp your lifestyle economically. Follow Jesus and it's not just business as usual. And then moments later, Jesus calls two more fishermen, James and John, the the Zebedee boys. And this time when Jesus says, follow me, the brothers not only drop their nets, they leave their dad. An important detail, since sons were a father's only real social insurance in those days. But they leave him. As one commentator puts it, the stress in this brief report falls upon the sovereign authority of Jesus' call and the radical obedience of James and John. So compelling is the claim of Jesus upon them that all prior claims lose their validity. Their father, the boats, and the nets are left behind as they commit themselves in an exclusive sense to follow Jesus. Evidently, discipleship can cramp your lifestyle, not only economically, but relationally as well. Follow Jesus 
And it's no more business as usual. Of course, not everybody who follows Jesus is asked to walk away from their livelihood and their families. The Gospels are so more complex than that. There are times in the Gospels when Jesus actually forbids people to come with him. Sometimes he sends people that he has healed back home and back to work. In other words, the cost of discipleship is not experienced the same way by everyone. The first two brothers are said to leave their nets. The second set leave their father. And this may well suggest that the call of Jesus that he issues to prospective disciples like you and like me, that call of Jesus is issued at that very point of greatest cost or challenge. But surely Mark gives this story such pride of place because he wants to make it crystal clear that discipleship is the ongoing discipline of devoting our whole lives to God. Family, finances, relationship, free time, you name it. As Dallas Willard puts it, following Jesus means learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were me. We follow him because we trust he has the power to change our lives and to shake us out of our dull routines. We follow him because we trust he is able to take us where we need to go. Otherwise, we never quite get anywhere. We can end up lost. Have you ever driven in a snow like that? One winter some years ago, there was a woman who was driving east through Alberta, going over the Rockies, and she was caught in a blinding snowstorm like that. And it was so cold and the wind was blowing, it was a whiteout. She was petrified to even stop and pull over for fear her car would get plowed into by the person behind. And she started to panic as even the windshield wipers uh, were trying to overcome the, the blowing snow. And peering ahead intently, she suddenly made out the figure of a snowplow in the distance. Ah, oh, what relief. She pulled in right behind that snowplow, keeping as close as she could and following along right behind it at a snail's pace. And after a while, the snowplow actually stopped and ahead of her she saw the driver of the plow get out of the car and come back to her <laughs> and walking over to her car uh, he, he looked in the window that she'd rolled down and said lady where are you going she says I'm on my way to Calgary well said the snow plow operator you'll never get there by following me I'm plowing this parking lot <laughs> All right, I know. <laughs> the moral of the story, if you want to get somewhere, you better watch out who you follow, right? Jesus knows where he's going. And the most amazing thing, the most amazing thing is he invites us to go along. He gives his followers purpose and direction in life. 
Jesus says, come with me, follow me. I will teach you to catch people. Follow me. And soon you'll be fishing for men and women. Brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me carefully now. One essential aspect of following Jesus is that in following him, he simultaneously leads us to others. It's a package deal. To be a Jesus follower is also to be put into relationship with people around us. We follow Jesus into the world where he asks us to help cast the net of his amazing grace as far and as wide as we possibly can, eager to call and welcome others into the joy of his kingdom, just as we've been called and welcomed and commissioned. I was I was caught in the net of God's grace when I was just a young boy which is a fairly typical age for that to happen. Indeed, I read a study a while ago in the Christian Century magazine that showed it was a study at what age most people are likely to become committed followers of Jesus. And you know what the average age was? Between 5 and 13 years of age. The the statistic was something like, as I recall, about 32% of children exposed to the gospel will make a commitment to Christ in that age group. But with kids ages 14 to 18, the age group when maybe some of you became believers, that stat goes way down. It's into single digits. Now, friends, I know it's kind of odd to talk about the odds of conversion and the probabilities of grace, and yet it can help us be strategic as we ponder our own vocations and callings. That's why it's important for us to pray and support one another here at Tyndale as we explore what God is calling us to be and do, particularly those of you who feel a vocational call to work with children and with young people and young adults as as teachers, as as counselors, as, as youth and children's ministry workers, because the younger the person, the greater chance that the relationship we establish and the net that we cast will result in their coming to know Christ and to love Him and to follow Him. Let me make one final observation about this text. Of course, the details of their call, these disciples, is incredibly minimal. It's five verses. But the point is, Jesus called and they followed. But the thing I marvel at is the sensitive, precise way that Jesus contextualized his message so these fishermen could catch the drift of what he was saying. He uses terminology they will comprehend in a heartbeat. And since fishing is their line of work, he puts the work of the gospel into terms they will understand. It is kind of a weird expression, isn't it? You know, rather odd phrase, fishing for people. In the Greek, that's literally what the words were. Alias anthropon. In the Old Testament and in the rabbinic literature, the image of fishing is normally a negative image. 
And I think the reason Jesus chose the image of fishing to call his first disciples wasn't to hearken back to those connotations, which were substantially negative, but rather because the obvious reason Simon and Andrew and James and John were fishermen and he wanted to communicate with them the nature of his calling to them in language they could grasp. As one one commentator puts it, Jesus finds them where they are. He speaks in language with which they are fully familiar, but he gives it an entirely different significance for them as they become apostles. And Jesus does this again and again throughout his ministry as he calls others to follow him. In other words, his conversations begin with with a familiar point of contact, putting people at ease and secure to the woman at the well. What does he do? He asks for a glass of water. And only then, when the trust is established, does Jesus begin to reveal to his listeners how much more is involved so that they can intelligently choose for or against the offer of discipleship that he presents. By contrast, what do most of us do in our churches today? We expect unbelievers to make all the adjustments in their dress, in their imitation of our ways of worship and the music we sing and the sermons we preach and the language and thought forms that we use before a proper conversation can ever take place. We build up our strength where we are and invite others into our setting one by one so that it so that they are at their weakest and least comfortable. And in so doing, we unintentionally, we put so many obstacles between them and the simplicity of the gospel itself. We have so much to learn from Jesus about starting where people are. I don't like this passage much. (laughs) I don't like it. I mean, it's God's word, and I love the Lord, so I love his word. But this passage scares me because it convinces me that following Jesus and fishing for people will challenge the status quo of my life, of our lives. It will likely take us as individuals and as a community out of our comfort zones, even into the arena of sacrifice giving up some of the things we really hold too deeply. But if we love those whom the Lord loves, then we will do whatever it takes to fish for women and for men, won't we? Right? Well, Officer Tori Matthews of the Southern California Humane Society once responded to a rather odd emergency call, a boy's pet iguana had been scared up a tree by the neighbor's dog, and then the iguana fell from the limb of the tree into the family's swimming pool. Iguanas don't swim. They drop to the bottom of the pool. Officer Matthews arrived at the scene with her net, but it didn't reach far down enough. The net wasn't long enough to scoop down and reach the victim out of the bottom of the pool. So she dove into the pool 
emerging seconds later with the pet's limp body in her arms. Those iguanas are big, you know, they can be heavy. And then came the moment of truth. (laughs) Officer Matthews thought, well, you can do CPR on a person. You can do CPR on a dog. Could you do CPR on a on an iguana? You know, this was no time for business as usual. So she locked lips with the lizard. And it worked. It worked. Later on, looking back at the incident, Officer Matthews is said to have reported it was a pretty ugly animal to be kissing. But the last thing I wanted to do was to tell that little boy standing beside me that his pet iguana had died. And the iguana lived. Who knew? (laughs) That's amazing. Officer Matthews did not see the ugly waterlogged reptile. All she saw was a frightened little boy's beloved pet. Friends, in just the same way, we may, not, we may not initially see the beauty in some of the people the Lord puts us in relationship with. But when we realize how much they mean to the Lord, how much the Lord loves them, then we should do anything we can to keep them from drowning. Jesus said, come follow me. I will help you catch people. Are you committed to do that? Are we committed to doing that? 